Welcome, Mom. Thank you. I cite your influence in my life almost on a daily basis. Where I want to start is um, Mom, Gail Coke, Gail, not Coke, Gail Tilly, mm-hmm. before kids. Yes. Growing up in Hawaii. Yes. So tell me about your upbringing and the important <clears throat> uh, parts of your journey that molded you as a young adult and uh, an adult. Where does it all start? Well, I remember being in Minnesota, first of all, and I was a year old and running around on a farm. Apparently, it was a grandfather grandfather's farm mm-hmm. that I never met. And um, we were doing something, going somewhere, and I ran toward a station wagon with the door flipped down and broke my front tooth in half. That was your first memory? That's my first memory. And you said that was Minnesota? Or Nebraska? Yes, Minnesota. Minnesota. I was born in St. Paul. Okay. So when I was a year old, the family packed up and went to Hawaii. My dad was a minister, Baptist minister. Was that the reason? Yes. Ministry? Yes, ministry. And um, by that time, we had three kids in our family, and I was the third. And when we got there, my mom had stair-step children until there were seven of us. So another girl. What what do you mean stair-step children? What is that? Every year. Okay. One a year. Um, Until there were how many? I'm sorry. Seven. Seven kids. Yeah. Which was pretty, it wasn't like. Atypical, I would say. No, it was pretty typical, yeah. especially for families, Christian families. And um, so I was like a middle child, and I was a quiet child. And um, so I got scapegoated a lot by my siblings. How so? <laughs> They'd break something and say I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was punished. You were the fall guy. I, I was the fall guy. And um, and I sucked my fingers. I sucked two fingers um, instead of a thumb. And I was just a little kid, but I sucked my fingers until the first grade. Um, I think it was like my security blanket, mm-hmm. you know. And um, one of, like those habitual things that kids do. Some yeah. some girls twirl well, their hair. Well, to make yourself. Feel, feel good. This feel, is normalcy. Yeah. yeah. Safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple dreams that were really, uh, that stayed with me through my life. And the, the most vivid one was I was maybe five or six walking down a street and saw a red balloon in the gutter. And I loved balloons. So I started walking toward this balloon. And the closer I got to it, the bigger it started blowing up. I remember you telling me about this. Yeah? Yeah. Should I go on? Please do, yeah. Um, It had a scary face on it. Mm -hmm. And as it got big, and I was almost ready to grab it, it threatened me. And if I held my breath, it would start deflating. That's horrible. And when I started breathing again. It got bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. And so what, is it, what does that signify? Like, what was that? <clears throat> is that a, a helplessness or a lack of control or what? 
<clears throat> I think so. Mm. Yeah. So I had a really um, controlling mother. Strict. Strict. With a strap. Strict with a strap. Um, like a literal strap. Yeah. yeah. And my father, I was terrified of him. So why I were, stayed. Why were you terrified of him? Well, he was big and menacing. And at that point, he was just like the de- the punisher. The authoritarian. Like he would come home and mom would say, this kid did that. And he said, okay, get over here and give us a spanking or something or give us a good talking to. And I was just like, so I kind of tried to just blend into the background. So I would have my fingers in my mouth and I would be sitting somewhere in a corner. Yeah, <laughs> staying out of the way. Right, so that was most, mostly my life as I was growing up until I started going to school. And I loved kindergarten. I loved learning. I was good with patterns and numbers. And um, in the first grade, I was sucking my fingers behind a book. And one of my classmates saw me and started teasing me. And that was the thing that made me quit. I mean, my mom tried everything. She tried to burn my fingers on an iron. She tried to wrap them with tape. She painted hot pepper on them. My dad tried to bribe me, but I wouldn't give it up. So <laughs> Social ridicule. Was <laughs> yeah, what, social what ridicule will do that. like that. Yes. Isn't that an interesting commentary on evolution? When the whole well, group go, or when somebody in the group whose approval you're seeking passes judgment you can so quickly change a habit yeah because it or because it hurts right yeah that's right because you feel so uncomfortable mm-hmm. and, but we're social creatures right and so it makes sense anyway that was um so you're in hawaii now when you started yes, school yes so we moved to hawaii when i was a year old mm-hmm. and i grew up there i remember uh living in pearl city and not having any food we were so poor poor as a church mouse and mom used to feed us lettuce salad, iceberg. Um, she used to give us cooked rice, white rice with soy sauce. And chicken? No chicken. Chicken's a delicacy. We that... couldn't afford meat. Okay. okay. So we had, at that time, maybe four or five children. Mm-hmm. And there were two more yet to come. So we were always scraping. And mom was really pinching pennies, literally. She was always frugal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when she gave us an allowance, it was pennies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was pennies. Back then, pennies were something. You could go buy candy or something at the store. Um, with them. When was Grandma born? What don't, year? Don't ask me dates. But she lived through the Depression, I no, want to say. No, her parents did. Well, maybe no, she, she... She was she was a kid, actually. She was a kid. Yeah. But she remembers a young like woman. a time yeah. of desperation in the country. Yeah, pinching pennies was, and our money went for. That's where she too. learned it from her parents, mm. and they were a bit of, um, they weren't a bit, they were hoarders. Mm. At least Grandma was. So years later, when I moved back to Iowa, um, I lived with my grandparents for a while, and they literally had cardboard boxes, very neat, mm-hmm. stacked up, with aisles through them. Walking and you walk through the house through aisles of boxes. Do you think that's a remnant of mm-hmm. the Depression era? I'm sure it is. Resourcefulness. I have to keep everything. Yes. I have to. I might use it to keep warm later on. Yes. Hmm. 
And they had an outhouse still at that time. And to take a bath, we had a big round tub. And this was like in 1974. Well, they had they had an outhouse when I was growing up. There was still an outhouse out at yeah. the farm yeah. when I was growing up. Yeah. And people would be like, oh, my God, they're still you. Yeah. 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 They're, they come from a different time. And yeah. And grandma would wear layers of clothing and all patched. Mm-hmm. You know, shirt sleeves with holes in them that she'd patched. Wear them to the end. Yes. Yeah. Until they literally fell apart. Growing up in Hawaii, you went to school. um, You were shy. I feel this. I was the same way. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if that's something that's in the genes, but uh, I'd rather Mm -hmm. be observing than be in the the, the center stage. Yes. And that fueled in me an anger uh, or an aggression because I felt left out of a lot of things Mm -hmm. or that I... I selectively kept myself out of things, sports, yes. you know, social activities, things like that. Yes. And um, that brought a lot of rage in me that by the time I got to, you know, 12, 13, I was ready to listen to Ice-T and Metallica and <laughs> fuck shit up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you, can you relate to uh, that? Is I can. That... I can relate to that. Um, I became quite rebellious because not only was I a quiet child, I was a neglected child. Neglected. Because I had seven... I had six siblings. Just wasn't time. And all of them were louder than me or younger than me and required more care. And because I was in the background, because I kept to myself, my parents didn't really develop a relationship with me. Mm. You know? So um, by the time I was a teenager, I didn't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah. You know, and it, it, at that time, my mother noticed that I was going wild. And she sat me down and said, what can I do for you? What can I get for you to help you go in a certain direction? Fly the straight and narrow? Well, not really that. She just wanted to know what I was interested in so that she could channel my attention. And I said to her, too little, too late, Mom. Because I really just didn't want to have any relationship with my parents by then. And I was 14 or 15. How do you feel about that decision now? I think that it was inevitable. Um, I regret not knowing my mother. Well, after having children of my own Mm. and looking back at, at mom and knowing how, well, she divorced dad, um, when my youngest brother was about six, seven, and um, Mark, Mark, mm-hmm. and so she was working, and she was on welfare, and she had each one of us girls, older girls, watching one of the younger children, because she was never there, she couldn't be there, and a couple of times she had nervous breakdowns and and went away. You know, until she felt better and came back. But my heart so feels for her. You know, looking there's back no now. way I could have understood what she was going through. Sure. And that's why I've always told you, Keone, you wouldn't understand it until you've done it. And if you've never done it. And we've had so many arguments about that. <laughs> you know, when you were a teenager, you said, why, why? 
and I would say, you wouldn't understand it. You'd say, tell me, why wouldn't I understand it? And, I, and it's an experience thing. But yeah, I'm very, um, I wish I could go back and, and change that. Would you go back or do you think that if you went back, you know, and we're getting into the scientific realm here, but like knowing that it could change everything, would you risk changing everything to go back and try to write it? Or are you happy with no, now? No, if, if time travel was a thing, mm -hmm. no, I wouldn't do it. Just in case? Um, it's not just in case. It's just because I really do believe that things happen for a reason, mm -hmm. the way they happen. And without going through everything I went through, I wouldn't be who I am. Right. And I'm very comfortable with who I am. That's kind of the, the feedback I get from a lot of people that are successful. And by successful, I mean happy. Yeah. Where they've, they've come to a point where they see the, <clears throat> they've reformatted the traumas in their life and reformatted their thinking about them as instead of being the things that limit them, they're the things that they endured, got through, and yeah. strengthened them. Well, you learn from it. Right. You learn from it. And that, as an example of that, um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Sure. Uh, when I moved back to Iowa and I could no longer stand living with my grandparents in, with an outhouse. How long, that, how long that happened? How long that take? Um, six months. Yeah, that's fair. I made um, friends with a new girl at school. We were both new, so we, we gravitated toward each other. And I would often stay at her house with my child, James, mm -hmm. as a little running around kid who they loved, and they would babysit for me. And this was Manchester? Um, in Manchester, and this was the Cole family. Um, and Patty, my best girlfriend, and I worked together at Manchester Inn, and I would go to her house and leave my stuff laying all over the place. And then I would get huffy with her, you know, and bitch and complain about things. And then finally, she started, she picked up a paper bag and started going around and picking everything of mine up and throwing it in this bag. And I said, what are you doing? That's my stuff. What are you doing with my stuff? And she finally handed me this full bag and she said, go home. Go back to your grandparents' house. Don't come back until you don't complain. You know, and that was my best friend kicking me out once and for all. Tired of hearing about your complaining yeah. and whining. And that yeah. was a learning experience that changed my life profoundly when that happened. It was like the the kid that called you out for sucking your finger. Yeah, well. It hurt in a way that changed you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like stung you real bad, but, you know, made no, you No, it stung me real bad. Did it? Yes, it did. So It made me look at myself. Yeah. And say, and think to myself, how would I react if someone did that to me? And s saw the justice in it. Yeah. And grew from it. You used to tell me that the, the Hawaiian Islands were different back then than they are now. Now they're pretty heavily corporatized in the tourism industry. And they're commercialized. Control, also controlled by the government in terms of where you can go in some areas. Like there's islands you can't go to or that are restricted. Well, they're not bit. really controlled by the government, but by the people, the Hawaiian people. So there, but you, there's not access to them. You can't just go yeah, to like certain Nihau, places. Yeah, like Niihau, you can't go there. No. When you were a kid, though, that was a possibility. You're, no, 
It wasn't. No. Um, there were certain islands you cannot go to unless you were 100% Hawaiian. Native. And that is still the case today. Is it? Yes. Um, I grew up on Oahu, the I, and I visited the big island of Hawaii, Molokai. I went with a school group to Molokai. Um, and those are the only islands I've been to. Kauai, the Garden Island, is a big tourist attraction. Lush garden. It's called the Garden Island. Mm -hmm. And Maui um, is agricultural. And your cousin Donald. Donny Boy. Donny Boy. Remember him? I don't, but okay. he's spoken of in legend. <laughs> family he's lore. He's been spoken in family lore many he's times. He's really awesome. He's he's a really big-hearted guy. Um, I he, feel like he I lives know these and people farms. kind of in a weird way because of yeah. how you've spoken and James yeah. has spoken about them, you know, so. Um, so he lives and farms with his family on Maui. And those are basically the islands you can go to. Um, but it, you, like, I thought you, I remember you saying something about Grandpa taking you guys out on, like, a boat to different islands to camp and stuff, and you just kind of had free reign. Is that, am I just dreaming that up? You're dreaming that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Grandpa built a boat. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. And we've been on boats, and one of my girlfriends in high school and I house-sitted a catamaran mm. for a couple weeks, and that was really cool. Um, Dad had a kayak. And we would take that out, and we would go to a little um, island off the coast of Oahu. Hmm. At low tide, you could walk across. Oh. At high tide, you'd have to Canoe. swim or take a boat. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I want to say Goat's Island, but there were snipes, which are birds mm -hmm. that nest in the ground, in holes in the ground, and we would go around with a flashlight at night camping i mean it was great fun and looking for snipes um <laughs> good memories on that island very peaceful craigs eroded by waves sticking out into the surf and then nice sandy beaches and just a tiny little island you could walk across it in less than an hour how do you think um <clears throat> Do you think growing up in Hawaii shaped you in ways? Or it did. Um, how, do, how do you think that growing up in that environment shaped you? Because Eric's been to Hawaii. You grew up in Hawaii. I have a Hawaiian name. I've never been to Hawaii. Eric's so, been to Hawaii? Yeah. Remember when you went? You, you took Eric. Oh, right. He was just a child. Though. Well, he was, you know, he was like 10 or he was old enough to remember. What What shaped me the most, I would say is the understanding that everybody, no matter what their nationality is, where they, they grow up, where they come from, we're all family. Um, there's a, a saying in Hawaii, when you're describing someone you're close to who isn't part of your biological family, your Calabash cousins. And um, this was very true. I had friends of all races, you know, black and Spanish and Puerto Rican, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, just, and to know them and to know their families, when you sit down and eat with someone, you realize 
you're all the same. People are all the same. You're all the same. So that was, uh, that really shaped me. I feel that to my core. And another thing that shaped me is there is discrimination there. Mm. In of spite outsiders? of the fact. Of outsiders or? A, there's discrimination in, in every way, uh, economic, mm-hmm. racial, sexist. Um, but as a, as a white person, as a Caucasian, which Hawaiian word for that is haoli. Haoli boy. Haoli. Um, we were really discriminated against. I was. And I recall walking home from school with a, a big Samoan girl walking behind me, pulling my hair the whole way, trying to grab my purse, you know, grabbing my purse and running off with it, calling me names all the way home, and I was just terrified of her. Um, and and that going into a store and being watched, being followed, mm-hmm. obviously followed while you're walking around. You know, yes, we were white, and we were dirty little kids <laughs> because we were always outside, and we ran around barefooted, and we had mud, not mud, but dirt on our feet, Shabby clothing because we were really poor, and that might have played a part in it. But um, I learned about discrimination, and before I left, it really gave me what do you call it when you're you're not sure of yourself? Like insecurities. Yeah, well, insecurities, but um, feeling like you're not worth anything. Mm-hmm. Low self-esteem. Mm. Yeah. Which is a good perspective in some <coughs> cases because you can empathize with the plight of other people. Yes, but yes, in retrospect. Yeah. Down but the I'm road. glad that I got away from that environment because then I understood more about how we are all alike and how you cannot let someone else's prejudice affect you. Yeah. So, um, you were a young mother. You were, you got pregnant with James. I got pregnant with James when I was 15. 15. And I gave birth at 16. Yeah. So I stopped. I quit school. Moved into a house on my own because my mom wouldn't have me there. Well, you have to understand. Gwen who's one year older than me. Your sister, yeah. Yeah. She got pregnant first. Mm. The following year, Charlotte, the oldest girl, got pregnant. None of us were married. Um, Charlotte married the father of her child after she graduated. My mother was devastated when Gwen got pregnant. And we had a big family meeting. And my father, who was a minister at the time told Gwen she had to get an abortion. Oh, dun, no way. Dun, dun. And mom was crying. And Charlotte and I and Sonia even were hovering around saying to dad, you're a killer. You want to kill a baby. You call no, yourself a minister. It was, it was really a bad scene. I bet. Um, and Gwen said, I'm keeping this baby. <laughs> That's Donald boy. And, um, 
And then the, the next year, Charlotte got pregnant. And mom thought, okay, you know, long-suffering mom. But they're getting married. And, and I have always felt like Charlotte was her favorite. You know. <laughs> so she, she was resigned but sad. And I came home from school one day, and I said to mom, Mom, sit down. I have something to tell you. And you're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not help myself, but I started to smile real big. And that was probably the cruelest thing because mom started to smile too. And I said, I'm pregnant. And her face just collapsed. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. And um, by then, I was getting high and running around, sneaking out at night, doing wild things you probably don't want to know about. And um, being, a, being a young rebel. Yeah. An unguided very much, young rebel. Very much having fun, party creature. Yeah. And um, she said, well, your child is welcome to stay here with me, but you're not. And being the rebellious child that I was, I was not going to give up my child because I was going to raise him in every way my mother didn't raise me. And I got on welfare. I got a tiny house. And we moved in. And this is still in Hawaii? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was in Miley. So how on earth <coughs> did you find yourself to Manchester? Because <laughs> because Hawaii <laughs> is one thing, discrimination or no. Okay, so the father of my child, um, James Rivera, James Carlos Rivera. Carlos, yes. Um, he was proud of being a father, and he wanted to provide, and he wanted to get married. So he signed up to the army. And he went off to New Jersey to a boot camp to train. And he was there for about a month before he was discharged dishonorably because James drank a lot of alcohol. And when he was drunk, he would get into fights. And he got into fight with his commanding officer. So he had a dishonorable discharge and came home. And... Um, got drunk and tried to, didn't try, kicked a hole through my front door because I wouldn't let him in when he was drunk. And um, I really did care for him a lot, but he came from a family with seven boys, and his every time his mother got pregnant, her husband, Ben, would beat her up. And I knew by then that kind of behavior runs in the family. Cyclical. And I was not going to have any of that. So my mother happened to be coming to Iowa to take care of her aging parents. And I went to her and I said, can I come with you? This wasn't a forever trip. This was just a, I'm going to go there for a while trip or? It was just. The wind is I had no plans. Here. I was just. I knew I had to get far away from him where he could not follow me because it was one of those relationships relationships where we'd get together and we'd break up, get together, 
breakup. And um, it's fun. It's horrible. It's fun. It's horrible. I didn't want to go through that. I didn't want to raise my child going through that. So we talked to the welfare people, and they were ecstatic that they'd be getting us off their rolls. <laughs> wouldn't be taking their money anymore, so they paid for us to go to come to Iowa. And that's how I got to Manchester. And when I got there, I went back to high school. I graduated on time and decided that I wanted to get into electronics. Well, went to Chicago, right? I did. For a before I did, um, before I left for Chicago, I, I was uh, enrolled at DeVry Institute of Technology for um, electrical engineering. And because I love science, you know that about me. I do. I um, love science as well, probably because of you. <laughs> so it had to be something with science. And James was about a year old when I got to Manchester. So he was probably two years old by the time I graduated. And um, I was still a party girl. So I was out in a bar oh, I just got dumped by some guy that I was seeing. So naturally, you find yourself... So naturally, I went into a bar and Looking I, for society's finest. No, I wasn't going to have anything to do with men anymore. You know, I was like fed up with dudes. And um, I used to drink apricot brandy on the rocks. Does that surprise you? Um, mm, that was really. my favorite drink when I turned 18. I went to the bar and got my first drink, and I fell in love with that, and that's what I would drink. So, And play pool. I used to play pool a lot. So I went to the bar in Manchester, and they had booths along one wall, and in the back they had a pool table, and nobody was it. No one was there. So I started just practicing on my own. And the bartender brought over a, a brandy for me, and I said, he said, this is from Doug. And I cringed because fuck men, you know, I'm not doing anything with them. <laughs> but here's a free brandy. So I picked it up, looked over at the bar, saw a big old guy sitting there, lifted it to him to say thank you and started drinking that. Now toss off. No, I said it like a lady. Anyway. <laughs> um, eventually, I decided I had to thank Doug. So the bar, I went to the bartender and asked him, who's Doug? And he pointed to Doug. Doug was sitting in a booth off to the side with his best friend, Jim. Jim Ryan? Jim Ryan's. Jim Ryan's. And... Um, I went over there and sat down and started talking to him, thanked him, and he was really good looking, as you might imagine. <laughs> I can only go off what people have told me. Beautiful blue eyes, mm -hmm. blonde hair, wavy, long, down to his shoulders, my kind of guy, you know, partier. This this would have been, uh, what, early 70s? 75. Mid 70s. 76. Full on bell bottoms. Oh, yeah. Hippie. hippie. Post-hippie culture. Post-hippie, yeah. 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 Rolling into the disco age. and. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the very next day. I was walking to the store because I ran out of diapers for James. 
and I stopped at the store and got a bag of diapers. And I was walking back to my grandma's house. And Doug comes in his big Monte Carlo, and he had a hat on. He always had a hat. <laughs> it was a hat. Cowboy you know, hat. Sort of like a cowboy hat, but flat on the top, round, flat brim. It wasn't a top hat, but it was you know, pretty close. Kind of like a gunslinger hat. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I think I've seen it on a Leonard Skinner album cover or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway, <sighs> he stopped the car. And he said, hi. And he said, where are you going? I'll take you. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, he's going to find out I have a kid, and he's not going to be interested anymore. But I'm like, all oh, this is going on in my head. And I'm like, well, that's okay, because I'm going to Chicago anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, you know, I don't remember, Keone, if this was after we had sex or not. The car? Think, no. I think we had sex on his waterbed, which just just was a bladder with <laughs> water sitting on the floor, and it was cold as hell. <laughs> so I thought it was shit. He's not going to want to know me anymore. But I said, sure, sure. So you guys hooked up before he knew that you had James? Yeah. yeah okay. Pretty sure. And... um he took me out to the farm, met my mom, met my son, met my grandparents, and I was so hippie. Long hair, flower in their hair, skimpy midriff top, jeans way low on the hips, <laughs> a bag made out of a towel. <laughs> Fun anyway, times. Yeah. And, um, he stayed with me. I'm, I moved to Chicago, and he would come up every weekend in his truck with no money to see me. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I was also sleeping with another guy when I was in Chicago. He didn't know about that, right? So <clears throat> I left Chicago after three months or so because... The woman who was watching James for me in the building one over, um, she was on welfare, and it was a welfare rental place. I mean, it was a tenement. Low income. Yeah. Yeah. And one of her neighbors was threatening to hurt her children and my my child if she didn't give him her food stamps. So she came to me and she said, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch your child. I can't take responsibility for him getting hurt. And I didn't know what to do. So I called Doug. And I said, can I stay with you until I get enough money to go back home? And he said yes. And that was that? He was living in Dundee at the time. Tiny in size but mighty in pride. That's right. Dundee, Dundee, Iowa. Dundee, Iowa. And um, so I went there with James, and James was maybe three. I could tell you stories about living in the the apartment building with all the DeVry students, but maybe another time. When I moved back to Iowa and lived with Doug, Doug was working at 
um, a place that was making heavy trucks at Henderson's. So he would drive from Dundee to Manchester, and he had the, the night shift. And Jim was living with us. Jim Ryan's his best friend. Funny guy. Everything he said was so funny. He'd just have a sore belly from laughing. But he was pissed off at me. And he said, when Doug was at work, he just started telling me off. You know, he said, you know, Doug loves you. And you're just going to leave him just like every other girl he's known. And you're going to break his heart. And you should just leave. And I felt like crap, right? So I had all these silver rings on every finger. You know? <laughs> does that remind you of someone you know? It does, actually. <laughs> silver rings on every finger. And they were like rings a girlfriend gave me. Mm-hmm in Hawaii and they they meant Hawaii to me so I went out into the cornfield and I pulled them all off and threw them into the cornfield and I said I'm staying I'm not going anywhere and I didn't love Doug but I was going to do the right thing okay and um, his generosity and he did anything I wanted him to do he did everything for me. So I told Jim, I'm staying. And that was after a long crying dad, right? You know, he's yelling at me and I'm crying and yeah. Do you ever tell dad about that? <clears throat> he knew, yeah. Yeah. Doug knew that I didn't love him when he got married. He knew that. But after you've been with someone for so many years, you just love him. You just, I'm really convinced. You can fall in love with anyone. I think so too. You know, if you're willing, and if you yeah. if you have a an honest heart, and they have an honest heart, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. So, um, I stayed with him, and we had many good times together. And he would he asked me to marry him twice, and I said no. <laughs> I am never getting married. Never. Marriage is bad. Look at mom and dad; they got divorced. And mm. she had seven children to take care of. Not only that, no more kids. No kids, no marriage. I'm a free, liberated woman. You know the drill. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to tell me what to do. Not after what I've been through. Anyway, um, we moved to Cedar Rapids. He started working at Harness Trigger. Um, and we lived in a... A building that his brother David owned. There was a upstairs rental and a downstairs rental. The woman who lived downstairs was having an affair <laughs> with David, <laughs> which was another story, and it's not mine to tell. But you might want to cut that out of this. No. <laughs> People like vulnerability and <laughs> provocativeness. I'm sure it's 30 years old. And we and knew it. We knew it, and his wife knew it, and there was a lot of drama because of that. Mm-hmm. But Doug and I lived upstairs, and we moved in there, and the person who had moved out was evicted, and she had left, like, five pounds of hamburger in the freezer. Oh, man. And the whole place was filthy when we moved into it, and we had to clean that out. And then 
Doug was working and I was staying home with James and I was getting high every day because I, I was bored. I couldn't bear it. I was lonely. I, I was, I got to the point where I was considering going out onto the street and hooking for kicks. And I thought to myself, what the fuck are you doing? You know, get a grip. And I looked up Baha'i faith because, you know, I didn't go into the Baha'i faith, but my father, who was a Christian, a Baptist minister, um, came home from a, a Christian convention one year, and he had become a Baha'i. Wow. At a, Christian, at a Christian convention? Yeah. Well, That's interesting. Okay. Let me digress a little bit. Dad... <laughs> was a seeker of truth aggressively so he would go to fortune tellers and cross their palms with silver and expose them as frauds he would talk to all the different ministers in the area presbyterians and um protestants and all the christian denominations all the different people that he would make yeah. friends with the ministers of those churches and they would have long theological discussions um he I was see. a searcher after truth so while he was at this christian convention in washington state um he read something in a newspaper about a baha'i fireside oh he wanted to go and rip them apart and expose <laughs> them this is his words you know so he went to this fireside, and he started asking them all kinds of pointed questions. And he was at that convention for a whole week. And I think he went back a number of times to talk to these Baha'is. And before he left, he became a Baha'i. So when he came back to Hawaii, the first thing he did, the first sermon he gave was, I have found a Baha'u'llah, and if you know what's good for you, if you really want to know the truth about Christ and his return, I challenge you to investigate the Baha'i faith. What do you think it was, so at <clears throat> that, if you had to guess, or if you had to um, ponder, what was the point, or what might have been the point that sold a Baptist minister on converting to the Baha'i faith and still keeping some congealment of uh, the story of Christ. What, what kind of convincing argument do you think he might have been presented that made him go, okay, and it left his mind open? It would have had to have been proofs that logically made sense to him in his knowledge of the Bible that convinced him that Baha'u'llah was, in fact, the promised one of all ages. And um, I've never talked to him about it, <clears throat> I've had, excuse me, I've had other conversations about religion with him, but not with this not much about that. All I know, and I was a pretty young child at the time, I might have been nine or ten, um, an age that was really attached to Christian traditions like Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. We had wonderful Christmases at our house, you know, like a lot of people do. But he came home and he told my mom 
that he was a Baha'i, and that was like a trigger for a month-long sob session for mom. She walked around the house with Kleenex for about a month, her eyes all puffy and red because they met in a Bible school. Hmm. So she was still a devout she was, Christian at this point. Yes, in time. she was the minister's wife. And to her, dad was the voice of God, hmm. you know? And here he was going to go to hell. Seriously, she believed that. And so she started reading the Baha'i books so that she could point out to him how wrong he was. And she read and read and read that whole month. And finally, she read the Baha'i prayer book. And she, and she told me this. Then she realized that it was true. She realized it was true, and she became a Baha'i too. So suddenly, here we are, seven children, no more Christmas, no more Easter because when my mom decided something, she put the law down. <laughs> that was that. That was that. And plus we got seven kids anyway and I can't <laughs> afford Christmas. <laughs> oh, we had other things that we got to do because dad was a minister and because he was a good speaker. Mm -hmm. um, the Baha'i, he did a lot of things for the Baha'i faith. He, he organized outings and hikes up into the mountains and fests and you know we had a great time being Baha'is but everybody else all our friends had Christmas and Easter right you know and I remember lying to my schoolmates about what I got for Christmas so did I so I, I told them I got a swing set <laughs> we lived right on the road <laughs> Well, I felt, you know, when I was a kid, I felt they could see there was no swing set. <laughs> Hasn't been delivered yet, I don't know. Fragile. <laughs> Must be Italian. But, you know, when I was a kid, um, being uh, in a Baha'i family, I felt like there's no way that I'm going to be able to explain this thing. Yeah. That we, that was a taste of me or a taste for me that I really value now yeah. because I feel... I have some small perspective on what it's like to be marginalized or what it's like to be in the minority yeah. because people don't, they don't understand. Oh yeah. And to have people that um, you understand, but they don't understand you is kind of a painful thing. It and is. it's a shameful thing where you're like, Oh, I'm kind of, what are they going to think of this? Like I was afraid people were going to think I was like in some kind of cult yeah. because kids would, they yeah. don't have any kind of, what's that? That well, sounds weird. I don't know weird. about that. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not, not all kids, of them, but, adults. but the, the fear, the fear is there. And yeah. there was even fear within dad's family. There were Catholics that thought, yeah. oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I this, was ostracized. Right. And treated yeah. poorly. And, um, it's interesting to me that in faith, mm -hmm. somebody could take faith, could take a faith that's based on the life of a man who's celebrated for his acceptance of strangers. Love. Love. Yeah. And turn it into something Hate. that ostracizes strangers yeah. and pushes them away. Yeah. But that's what happens, and it happens all over the world. It happened yeah. with uh, Baha'is that came to Cedar Rapids from Iran, the Hosseinis, yes. who are fleeing persecution, and it's still happening yes. even to this day. It is. Um, in the name of something holy, yeah. we're told, which is In my, the name of God. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I can relate to that because I always felt like I was in the minority, and I was always kind of like, oh, 
and I don't want to have this conversation about religion and all this mm -hmm. stuff. And now <clears throat> um, I still look back at a lot of those experiences in the Baha'i faith. And you know me, the consummate rebel, I've never accepted any faith, mm -hmm. though, the, though they have tried. Yes, they have. They have. Uh, <laughs> they have tried to penetrate my shield of of, <laughs> of, logic. of potentially God-given logic and proof. Uh, and proof, and have not done so. But I've never closed my ears. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I would say that I took from the Baha'i faith that resonated with me as an idea was they were the first religion that acknowledged other prophets. Mm -hmm. Most other faiths will acknowledge but insist upon your recognition as their prophet, specifically with Christianity. You have to, you have to acknowledge Christ as the living embodiment of God. Christ is the, the first and the last. Yes, and the it. only begotten. Yeah. And anybody that you would, that didn't make sense to me. Um, it, it seemed like a lot of this was interpretation. It seemed like because of the logic that you taught me that when you hand down language over the course of hundreds, millennia, potentially, yeah. that the messages can be skewed just enough that the tiniest little thing over the course of a socioeconomic Centuries. progression would have this enormous impact. And uh, almost true statements could become just flat out lies in just a matter of time. Well, and then and then there's the translation thing. Right. You you're, tr you're ultimately you're trusting somebody else's yeah. translation and yeah. knowing that a lot of these translations are flawed, could go completely different directions yeah. based on interpretation. But the recognition of um, the Abrahamic religions, the recognition of this progression of spiritual um, development through the ages and, mm -hmm. and something that really stuck with me is because I, you know, I grew up, you taught me about Jesus Christ. You taught me about Muhammad and mm -hmm. some of these other central figures. And the thing that was really provocative to me about the Baha'i faith, and honestly, um, outside of some of the writings, which I can read now and better understand and better grasp was the idea that they weren't saying you can't believe in these things. Right. You should believe in these things yes. because they're real things. But this omnipotent being that comes from a source of power and intellect that you can't possibly comprehend, recognizes the developmental changes in primitive beings enough to send new messengers through yeah. the ages so that, and you know, it's provocative even more because now that I look up archaeology and yeah. some of this archaeology that is accepted and isn't accepted, you start seeing more of this. You start yeah. seeing these these prophets that showed up in these ancient civilizations all across the world and nobody can explain why they all have the same characteristics. They all yeah. came in in the same way. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting idea to me because most faiths have bet all of the power of their faith on complete submission to it. Where this one tried to provide a logical explanation as to why there would be multiple prophets coming almost systematically. Yeah in time for huge cultural change. And that's something that stuck with me for my whole lifetime and something that I still cite and something that I, I feel like I believe. I, yeah. I can't get on board with any hype train that says mine and only mine. Yeah. And because it's all about love. Right. It's all about it, the universal the maturation of humanity. And you talked about this with me when I was a child, that the golden rule 
Yeah, it's in every religion. It's in every religion, and it's clearly stated in every religion. Yeah. It's the tie that binds every single religion together, and exactly. it's what every religion says is probably the most important thing. Yeah. And they get caught up in the minutia to yes. the point that they'll kill each other yes. over ideas, ultimately yes. ideas. My father once asked me um, if I thought the world was better off with or without religion. And that's the thing, you know. You, what is religion? Religion is what people have made of the teachings of a messenger. It's the it's kind of the human embodiment or the human attempt of embodying that that they of can't carrying understand. Carrying those teachings on, but humans can't understand God, and they can't understand that no one human should be able to say, "I know." What you don't know. I know, and so listen to me. And I've got listen a... Listen to my version. I have a relationship with a supreme being that you don't. Yes. That's your first warning. Yeah. When somebody tells you that, yeah. that they're more interested in leading a cult and dominating your thoughts yeah. than they are yeah. actually, you know, transcending human yes. thought. Um, so, um, and Baha'u'llah says, if religion is the source of dissension... You're better off without it. And we have the Baha'i faith, which is a religion. And that goes for that, too. Mm -hmm. If the Baha'i faith becomes a source of dissension, you're better off without it. And then there's also the directive of individual investigation of the truth. You're better off without the faith. Without not the religion. Not without the religion or religion the ideology. Religion is the construct. Right. Is the system. Is the institution right that men have made around a certain Idea. prophet of god yeah anyway we've gotten off on a, a tangent here well it's a big part i mean that's it a is. part of my upbringing it too is. so so i was in this really deep hole in my life um a pit of despair quite aptly um and so i got out the phone book which I don't know if you know what a phone book is. <laughs> I know what a phone book is, Mom. I was born in 1980 until about 2000. We, we used them. So, um, and I looked up the Baha'i faith and I found them and they weren't very far from me. In Manchester? They had people? No, by then we were in Cedar Rapids. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay. And I went there to a fireside and that was the Seagrams, Jim and Kathy Seagram. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, Kim, Kim Seagram, they adopted him. He was a... Korean boy with mm -hmm. a lot of medical issues. Kim Byung. Kim Byung, Seagram. And is um, Kim still around here? Yeah, I yeah, swear he I've seen him. I, are you shitting me? Street of IV. course he yeah. does. Oh my gosh, yeah. I've seen him there. I'm like, <laughs> he's always happy to see me and gives me a hug every time. That's awesome. Anyway, um, you know, Kim is a gamer. The next time I see and him, I'm, I'm going to stop him. The next time I see him, I'm going to stop him and talk to him because I literally haven't talked to him in 30 years. He's awesome. Yeah, he was a cool kid. Yeah. Um, anyway, I went there to their house. This is before they adopted Kim. And they were having a fireside, which is just a like a friendly gathering in their living room where anyone who's interested in the Baha'i faith can just ask questions mm -hmm. about it. It's no pressure, low key. Just or they don't know the answer. They say I don't know the answer, but I can get back to you when I talk with someone more knowledgeable. Anyway, I went there 
And um, I had become a Baha'i when I was um, 16, 15, because if I was going to be any religion, it was going to be the Baha'i because it's the only one that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. So it was a rebellious kind of thing. And I sat there uh, just listening to them, and I just started crying. Why do you think? I'm going to start crying right now. Good. (laughs) Because it brought back to me what mattered to me. What mattered to you? I've always been in touch with my spirit. When I was a little girl, when I was a teenager, I wanted wanted to be that lady on the mountain with a stick in her hand and white flowing robes. (laughs) I wanted to be that guru. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because I felt like Everybody is one family because we have to heal the world. And um, I started crying because I realized how far I had gotten off my track. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then I'm like, in, like my mother, in the fact that once I decided to embrace my faith, I was not going to live in sin anymore. Stop smoking, stop drinking, stop smoking pot. I told Doug, um, I'm going to leave you unless you marry me. <laughs> That's how I proposed to him. I gave him an ultimatum, and I still didn't love him, but he looked at me suspiciously, and he didn't give me an answer for about a week. He was mulling it over. and um, Like he... Like he always did. Well, no. He wanted to marry me. He asked me to marry him twice. But I always said no. But he was making a careful decision because of that. And so now he's like, what's up with this? What changed? Well, he knew what changed because I was reading the Baha'i World Faith. um, And I would read it aloud to him in bed at night. (laughs) And then I I said to him, I can't live like this anymore if, if you want me to stay with you you have to marry me so finally he said yes and we we got married and um and we started living the american dream oh yeah i was still not working doug was our sole breadwinner he worked at harness trader they paid pretty good while he worked there right yeah he was getting really good pay yeah so at the advice of Ronald Johnson, Ronald J, Ronald J, we bought and moved into a trailer at the Kirkwood Trailers. Dun, dun, dun. 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 <laughs> I've made similar errors. This is where you were born. Oh, yeah. I've heard okay, many so. stories about it, and it sounds like I'm glad that I don't remember it. It was a horrible little trailer. It's not anything <laughs> like the trailers they have these days. It was cold in the winter, and it was really hot in the summertime. It was like living in a tin can. And um, I still smoked cigarettes, Mm. you know, smoked two and a half packs a day. (coughs) Wow. Glad you gave that one up. Yeah, and in a trailer, when you smoke that much, everything smells like smoke. Really gross. It's like a sponge. It's like you can't even stand being with yourself. Yeah. Because you smell so bad. That was my water. Anyway, 
the trailer, the mobile home, if I recall, and I can edit this out if you don't want me to, but I remember you and dad telling me that James pissed a hole in the yes. corner of his room. Yes. He'd like go into the corner, like into a closet corner or something right. like that. Yeah, I'd appreciate it if you edit that out because that's Jimmy's story. <laughs> he would I probably don't, I don't think it's hilarious. Shame him. He probably no, I won't. I'll but um, that's a whole nother story, James, and his hyperactivity. Hmm. That's a whole nother story. Well, I he was it was so challenging living with him. Well, and you're a young parent too, so that yeah, doesn't and, help. And I thought that's how all kids were. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went to Hawaii to visit my sister Sonia. This was after you and dad got together? Yes. After you'd like yes. accepted the Baha'i faith? Yes. Okay. This is when we were living in the trailer house. Okay. And um, I saw Jimmy's father and he wanted to get together with me, but I was like, Baha'i. And I'm like, I'm married now. Leave me alone. Things are different. Yeah. <laughs> I'm different. <laughs> and I was. Yeah. Yeah. But um, when I was there, I was staying with Sonia in this really big old, beautiful, old, old house in Hilo. And it was an artist's house. And she had just had Melanie. And Melanie was maybe two years old. Cutest little girl. And I just fell in love with her. She was cute. Interesting story, this. While I was there, the Baha'is had their annual election for the local spiritual assembly. And while I was getting high with my sister, Sonia. I thought you were done with sin at this point. I was. I was done with smoking pot. But while I was there, Sonia, who is an artist, (laughs) and my my little sister, uh, she had some pot. And I, I used to be a real big pothead, and I just couldn't resist. Well, you know, pot was put here on earth by a higher power. Yeah, a lot of things were. All of the things yeah, were. Yeah. So there's there really should be no connection whatsoever <clears throat> between sin and smoking pot, just for the record. Well, I'm, that's another conversation. It is. But here, here I was getting high, and I got... A dozen red roses delivered to me with a note saying I was elected onto that body, the local spiritual assembly. In Iowa. In Iowa. And I felt like such a hypocrite. (laughs) But I fell in love with little Melanie. And so when I got back to Iowa, I said to Doug, let's have a baby. I want a baby. Because I didn't work, he did. And he didn't want a baby. He didn't want to have another child not not with all the hell james put us through plus donald boy lived with us for a while that's right yeah and you know him and him and uh, james went down to the convenience store and ripped stuff off and we <laughs> called the cops on them and scared the shit out of them so they wouldn't do it again i heard they were a dynamic duo <laughs> donnie boy and james yeah anyway um so he, he wasn't thrilled at the idea at all but I pressured him and pressured him because I wanted a little baby. <laughs> and um, and thus were you conceived. And I did not stop smoking until after I gave birth to you. <laughs> mm. Good to know now. <laughs> Good to know where those lung problems but, came from. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Um, no, no, I did. I did quit smoking before, but I was pregnant with you. And um, while I was pregnant with you, we were approached by a couple of local teachers, high school teachers, to join their Shackley family. Are you familiar with Shackley mm-hmm. products? Are you familiar with Amway yeah. health products? Yep. Well, Shackley is a cool, close cousin to that. Okay. It's a pyramid uh, thing. So we thought, oh, yeah, you know, because we were just getting into health, you know. And so we, we bought into it. We bought our distributor kit. And we started buying products and using them. We're going to be rich. Doug was making this. Well, we were in it for the health. Hmm. We were like, yeah, you have to have a distributor's kit, but we're just going to buy stuff for ourselves. And and then we were getting pressured by our sponsors. So um, Doug was making me shakes, uh, protein shakes and everything. That's why you're such a big baby. That was why you were such a big Because I was getting pumped full of nutrients. Yeah. And um, <laughs> finally, we told our sponsors, we don't want to do this anymore. And they got really angry at us. Of course. And they said, why? And we said, we don't like to sell things to people. We don't like to put pressure on people to buy things they don't want. It's different if they want it, but we don't want to go and try and convince them that they should have it. Mm-hmm. And they, they would have come back with arguments like, you sold each other to yourselves. You know, everything you do is a sell. You know, and we're like, no. The regular sales rhetoric, yeah. So we left that. And then after I gave birth to you, I was still smoking. Still smoking while I was taking these healthy products. I was addicted to cigarettes. I know. I remember. And um, after I gave birth to you, I didn't want to smoke around you. Mm -hmm. So Dad and I, we were both smokers. We took our last cigarette and we put it on the dashboard of our car. And we told each other, Okay, now, as long as we have that cigarette, we don't have to buy another pack. So don't smoke. (laughs) Otherwise, we'll have to buy another pack. Jedi mind tricks. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it worked, but also it worked because we started jogging. So we were jogging around this trailer park every day, sometimes two, three times a day. As a means to get out of the trailer itself. No, every time we wanted to smoke. Oh, it was a habit. Go out and run. Got you. So when we got past the cravings, then Dad said, hey, I think we had signed James up for Taekwondo at Jung's Taekwondo. And Dad said, hey, let's go check that out. They have a fitness center there, too. So I said, by then, I had all the paraphernalia of a long-distance runner. And I was going to run a marathon. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I just want to run. I don't want to do any other exercises. I've never been into sports. I just want to run. Just <laughs> let me run. <laughs> and I was losing weight, you know, and I was feeling good about yeah. myself. So, um, <laughs> boy, this is, this is going to be a long podcast. It's all right. And, um, 
So we went and we toured it. And I saw that they had a treadmill. And I thought, wow, that's cool. You know, I could run on that in the winter. And so we signed up. You know, I was reassisting the whole way, and Dad was just dragging me along because he was bound and determined that he, we were going to do this. And he was telling me things like, yeah, you got to balance your body. Your legs are all good now, but you have to balance your upper body. So we started working out. And um, and this this was raw power. No. This was not raw no, power. What was what gym Jung's was this? Taekwondo. Oh, so there was a gym new in life, Jung's. New Life Fitness Center. On the south side? Yes. Oh, okay. South I've been in there. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. I used to go there. Interesting. They have a sauna and a swimming pool. Yep. And, and you know, that's interesting because we were sponsored. Our gym was sponsored by them later. Really? Yeah. Hard Drive was sponsored by New Life for probably five years. And only when it came under new management, just like five to ten years ago, did we part ways. But the whole time I went there, I had no idea that that was where you guys yeah, worked out. That's where we started getting into that's um, awesome. bodybuilding. Bodybuilding. So <laughs> yeah. that was another chapter in your life. Yeah. So you started that after me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because I was doing circuit training as well as running on the treadmill. My shoulders, I'm, I'm naturally endowed with wide shoulders for a girl. And I, my arms were like ripped. And I would go into the sauna and people would say to me, wow, you have come so far. You should compete. And I'm like, nah, that's not my thing. And then they would argue with me, but you know, it's a way to motivate yourself to do better. Mm -hmm. And so I started competing. And I did that, and I worked out like seven hours a day, aerobics and weight, um, for like four or five years straight. I remember one of my first memories was with Grandma, Mary, and I think Dad might have been there too, sitting in the stands of some local hall or performance and seeing lines of women adorned in white feather headdresses. <laughs> Do you remember this? No. Like, it was like an entrance to a, a show, basically, uh -huh. is how the show started. But all these women in these white things with headdresses would come down. And I was like, what is, the hell is going on here? And then they had the bodybuilding show after that. That was the, one of the first things I remember. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know how I old no that was. I had no idea but that went on. But I was behind the scenes of being stressed out, you know. And covered, in, and covered in oil yeah, and tanning putting oil, oil and stuff. Yeah, oil on and just my swimsuit showing anything you know what it what do you think you took out of bodybuilding i got a great sense of confidence in myself through that discipline the gaining of strength that the, just the discipline mm -hmm. of of being athletic you know and uh i was addicted to endorphins sure you know i the good i had to go out for my run or i would be cranky i can identify um <clears throat> And um, by then I was working. I was working at a convenience store, and they sponsored me. What and convenience store? 7-Eleven. Uh, 7-Eleven. was in town. Yeah, no longer. It has since been sold. Uh, I think it's now Quick Shop. It was Quick Stop, Quick, quick Shop. Stop. It's changed yeah. a million times. And... Um, and I got, I won the state championship in two different uh, 
organizations. Miss Iowa, right? Miss Iowa. 1984? God, don't ask me about yours. <laughs> yours all flow in two ends. <laughs> anyway. Um, Doug was entirely supportive, and by then I was in love with him. You know, we were a, a couple raising a family, and we were devoted to each other. Um, and, oh, I didn't tell you about, but that's okay. You don't need to know. <laughs> You can't do that. You you got to tell All me right. now. All uh, right. You remember when I said I was uh, sleeping with another guy in Chicago mm-hmm. when I moved in with Doug? Right away, I told him, and then we almost broke up. I mean, there are so many times during our relationship when we could have just gone our separate ways. Everybody's relationships yeah. like that. Anyway, yeah. it was traumatic too. That was traumatic too. But I had to come clean. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so bodybuilding build, body years, I stopped competing when um, I realized that to go any further, I would have to start doing steroids. Because uh, women at the time, uh, what was bodybuilding at, at the time in the 80s what is what now looks like fitness competition. And now bodybuilding today doesn't look anything like bodybuilding in the 80s because most of them on the pro circuit are pumped full of testosterone. Well, I started bodybuilding when it was a brand new sport for women. Brand new. But the look was different at the time. What they were looking for. Not really. I thought what they were looking for was different than what they're looking for now. No. Um, They were looking for muscle symmetry and abundant muscle. And I had it. But I wouldn't do roids. You had it to I, what the I had, of what it was natural. Right. It was natural for me. You hit genetic capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. And when I realized that it was going into a way of using drugs, I, you know, Doug and I both hated the look of guys pumped up on roids. Doesn't look natural. Well, it doesn't look natural. It looks like someone stuck an air hose in their mouth and blew them up like a balloon. And the muscle and isn't then, the same. It's just if not. they stop taking <clears throat> roids, Everything shrinks and they their skin just sags on them, you know. Yeah. Um, we it, it wasn't healthy, and yeah. we were in it for health. Right. We started doing this for our health, and so I stopped competing and I started judging, and then as time went on and the steroids basically took over in women's competition as well, I just done didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where it is now based on what I've gathered is you have natural, you have all these different divisions. First of all, you have natural, you have pro, you have this, you have all this fitness now. They have all these different divisions. So it's like, first of all, what am I winning? Really? Yeah. And how healthy is it if, if I want to build my body and construct my body a certain way, but they're going to build it with male <laughs> hormone yeah. or human growth hormone? What's the point? I, I remember hearing somebody talking about the pro circuit and bodybuilding and like Mr. Olympia and stuff and how they test for drugs for illegal steroid use. And the way I don't want people to chew me up and spit me out on this, but it, essentially it's like this. If you're one of the people that randomly gets tested, the one out of however many competitors, you just go home. That's the way it is. Your year oh. is worth because you're going to fail yeah. unless you have mm-hmm. some 
magical aligning. You're the, the sacrificial lamb. You're the sacrificial <laughs> lamb. And people kind of know that. And I don't know how much truth there is to that, but I could totally see it. You're, you're not going to test every single one of those competitors. And then when you see the natural division versus the pro or whatever it it's is, obvious. it's so painfully yes, obvious. It's it just like, let's have a clear cut conversation. Yeah. I, I it really enjoy the female form, mm -hmm. you know, and when it's natural, it's beautiful. I, I agree. When, when a woman is athletic and has developed her muscles and is, I mean, it affects her posture and her gait and everything, it's beautiful. Well, when you start putting muscle on. People that. say that's subjective, and I feel like we live in a way more PC culture even than we did before, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's just weird to me. But um, there's going to be people out there that are like, I think I look beautiful big. And it's like, Okay, that's fine. But you're, if you're a, a female with a 125-pound skeletal structure and you're walking around 190 pounds, yeah. 195, that's not healthy. Mm -mm. And to most people, right, I'm not saying that you you're look ugly or you should be ashamed of yourself, but to most people, there, there is a, an ideal physical form. It's, all, it's been scientifically documented. Mm -hmm. And when you take... Uh, a, a female that's in really, really good shape, and then you add a lot of unnatural hormone, things physically change with her body and start turning her into an actual man. Like, yeah. And, and I don't think and that's there, attractive. And like, then there's the skin, the skin eruptions, you know, the pimples and the back rashes. Knee, back and, knee, yeah, all that shit. You know, and that doesn't happen when you don't do those drugs. That's one of the you big know. four alarm like the the big easily seen indicators oh they've got acne all over his back he's juicing yeah, yeah. and i felt from my time in martial arts there are the <laughs> exceptions there are people at the highest levels of martial arts that use these performance enhancing drugs and they have doctors in very very uh, up-to-date medical research on how to administer them but then you'll go to health clubs and you'll see just a guy that juices like yeah. without any and you can tell the difference in the muscle tone you can tell the difference in the functionality we've had a lot of people that have juiced come into the gym and in, when i first got into martial arts and mma i'd have people come in from my work that were juicing they're all jacked up and i'm like well shit this guy's gonna be a real handful nothing no applicable muscle whatsoever yeah. no functionality of movement no f so after one to two minutes of a big initial like bull charge they can't even move yeah. so what is you know I, I was listening to a a story about a bodybuilder whose wife was his manager mm -hmm. and she had to wipe his ass because his lats were so big oh that he gosh. couldn't wipe his own ass. Wow. How is it worth it? No, no. <laughs> for me, it's not for him. It was and for people like Ronnie Coleman, mm -hmm. who, you know, Ronnie was the goat after Arnold who won Olympia after Olympia. And he was not only enormous, but he was strong. Mm -hmm. Like he was actually strong. Now he's basically crippled. Yeah. And he said, and he said, even recently, I'm crippled. I can barely move. My life is 100% pain. And I knew what I was getting myself into. And it was all worth that trophy case. And I've, I've run into that attitude with women, too. Whatever it takes to win. And that's. Whatever it takes means death, too. Yeah. And means they don't care. I mean, whatever I know. it takes yeah, I know. to win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that exists that in one MMA spotlight, too. Yeah, you know, that yeah, exists in MMA. The people that will not worth it to me. lay their life on the line potentially for it, and they're not going to die, right? But they're willing to <laughs> if that's what it takes to get into but, the books. Yeah, but then they live the rest of their lives in pain or quality of life is yeah. for me, and probably for you, 
Um, quality of life. It's quality of life. And yeah. uh, the, I totally get the suffer now and live forever, a, you know, a legend or whatever. But I'm like, hey, that's cool. But you're going to be dead. <laughs> and I'm going to be walking up a mountain. And I'll be going, yeah, you know what? That person is a legend. But I'm still here to recognize it. And that's pretty legendary if you give <laughs> gratitude for being alive in the moment. So uh, you you stopped uh, competing in the 80s. This would have been the late 80s. Yeah. Um, I think Eric, right? Right around the time Eric was uh, conceived, conceived or born. Well, by the time I quit before you then. You would wind it down, yeah. I quit before then. And Doug and I separated for a few years. Yeah. That was traumatic to me. That was one yeah. of my biggest traumas. Yeah. Um, and we've talked you took, about that. You took, you went with dad. Mm-hmm. And James came with me and the biggest reason we split up was James. I don't think that we picked. I think that it was decided because I don't remember a choice in the process. No, it was decided. Yeah. I, I decided. Yeah, cause because I didn't like it. I was not, a, I was not I, happy about I it. I felt like Doug was treating Jimmy differently than he was treating me. Mm. And Jimmy was a stepson and he didn't deserve that. Um, and so since he was my son, and since you were dad's son and my son, but mm-hmm. I had to let dad have you because he was so bonded with you by then. Um, Did we go to grandma's first? You into went Manchester? and lived with, with my mother in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And then you moved back into Marion. You moved to Marion. I think we went to Lamont first. That could be. Because I was, I was enrolled at Lamont Elementary when I was six. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we stayed there for like, I think it was six months, but yeah. he was commuting to 7-Eleven. Right. And he making, clearing and that, no money. That was during that recession yeah. when he lost his job. Yep. And um, he was working at that place that made printing presses. Goss. Goss. That was after. Rockwell Goss. So that he worked there after. I'm pretty sure. Okay. The, the you guys were both working at 7-Eleven at the same time. Right. And and uh, jobs weren't coming easy. No. And so that was a I that was, was a tough time. I was working two jobs. I was working at 7-Eleven and I was working at a restaurant as a salad chef. Mm. That was tough though. Monty's restaurant. During that time we we didn't have really mm. anything. I was living with my roommate, mm-hmm. Linda Gaffney. And um, you were living with my mother and with in Lamont for a while and then you moved to Marion yep and we were apart for about three years but for two of those years we were still lovers mm-hmm. and Eric was conceived and when I found out I was pregnant well in between there when I was still running the women's gym before we split up mm-hmm. that was raw power right <clears throat> yeah yeah um I got pregnant and we decided to terminate it because it was, we couldn't handle another child. And what um, year would this have been? That'd be like 85? I don't remember. 86? Mid 80s? Something like that? Um, Probably three years, two years before Eric was born. Yeah, because he's 88. Yeah. So about 85, 86. So then when Eric was conceived, neither one of us could bear the thought of another termination you know and so because we were going to keep this baby we decided to get back together so Eric actually saved our marriage (laughs) you want to look at it that way because 
I was pretty sure I would never get back together with Doug. Why is that? Um, Doug was very high strung, and and you know he was a worrier. He was always there was his mind was always going. Yeah. And he would worry about every little thing, and I couldn't bear it. In the time this guy, in the time that we were separated, he his personality changed a little bit. He became a little more easygoing. Um, and maybe that's because I wasn't with him. So that was a good thing. Um, he kind of loosened up a little bit. And I think he grew from it and I grew from it. And we decided to make it work. And as soon as we did that, we moved into Cedar Rapids into the northwest side house. You, yeah, you'd already been living there. Yeah, with a roommate. Yep. And um, I decided I had to go into college. <laughs> While you were working at 7-Eleven yeah, and another place. Yeah. Well, I gave up the salad chef job. But you were going to school part-time. Part-time. Yep. took me eight years to get a four-year degree, bachelor's degree. Um, I remember that day. And because I was going to school... You guys were with dad most of the time. And my mom was watching Eric as a baby. Mm-hmm. And she would try, she would wheel him over to Aldi's. Yep. Buy Fig Newtons. And get food. <laughs> Fig Newtons. Fig Newtons, yep. A legendary Fig Newtons. Grandma yep. cookies. Yep. Have a Fig um. Newton. <laughs> I would too. And everyone, you know what's funny? I go into Hy-Vee and every time I roll by Fig Newtons, I think of grandma. Grandma's cookies. Yep. yep. It takes me back to all those memories. Yeah. Anyway, so those years are kind of a blur for me because I was working and I was going to school and it was so draining. Mm, and I, I remember. I did not have time for my family and it was heartbreaking, but I needed to make more money than I could make at a convenience store. So that was always in my mind for the whole eight years that I had to do this. I had to get through this and then I had to get a good job and I did. And um, when I started working at the university, Dad also found Terex. Terex, yeah. It and was it was Rockwell Goss, I think, and then it was no, no um, Rockwell Goss closed. Right, yeah. they got shipped to China. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it it was Cedar Rapids <laughs> Incorporated, then later bought out by Terex, yeah, I think. But yeah, yeah. Terex now. Yeah, it used to be Cedar Rapids Manufacturing. Yeah, and then it's. Making rock pavers and stuff like that. Um, So in the end, we were both gainfully employed. um, But it was a struggle. And we were able to buy our home. Yeah. Yeah, it was a struggle. It really was. And as soon as we moved into our home, you decided to leave. (laughs) I did. (laughs) And then your life started with Tish. Yeah. So um, let's take it there then, I guess. How... how, um, from the perspective of my mother, somebody that knows me in and out and has helped shaped the way I think, um, how do you see me now? I know that's kind of a vague question, but... You're kind of amazing. You know, you've, you've set your mind to what you... To your core values, you know, 
uh, really proud of you. I'm a little astonished by you. Why? How so? Because you are, you cut your own cloth. I don't mean that literally. No, you cut my cloth. You cut the cloth, this cloth <laughs> that I'm wearing right here. <laughs> you you go to the beat of your own drum. To the things you believe in, you stick to them. And I guess I do that too. You know, I guess I've always done that too. Although I did buy into the whole American dream for a while. I remember when I was able to buy my first car, which was, I mean, all on my own, mm -hmm. which was uh, a Nissan Maxima used. Nice car. Love that car. Mm -hmm. I once remarked to my best girlfriend, I'm there. You know, like that was a big deal. And To a lot of people, that is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. But I had bought into the whole work hard and and you'll, good things will happen to you. I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I think now that you just have to be true to yourself and just go with the flow and take whatever comes. Be a leaf in the river um, and not try to change that. You know, make the most of whatever life throws at you. But at that time, after years of living in poverty and struggling, it felt good to not have to worry about money. As much, yeah. At it, all. You didn't, you say when you got the maxima, you think that you were like done worrying about money for the most part? Pretty much. And that I was mean, about the time I left. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was. Well, it's convenient. I was time. making <laughs> seven times as much as I made at a convenience store. Right. After and you dad, got out. Dad was working at Terex and he was making his money and. We knew we had to keep our money separate because otherwise we'd fight about it. Mm -hmm. So I did what we separated our expenses. You know, I paid for the house and he paid for the utilities. And then whatever else we had left, yeah, we left. could spend what we wanted to. So he became a master at wood turning and he spent a fortune on tools. <laughs> and I never said a word. And I spent my money the way I wanted to, and he never said a word oh, unless he needed something. <laughs> then he would mention that, oh, the washing machine died today, and then I would say, okay, let's go get a new one. That was freedom. That was economic freedom. Um, that was nice, but I'm beyond that now. But that's easy for me to say because I own my home. Mm. And uh, I own my car. I don't have any debt yet. <laughs> and that is a that is kind of an American dream. It, that, that it takes That's not the American dream that I know. Well, not the one you know, but to an immigrant coming here from another country. Yeah. That's the dream. To not have to worry about where money is coming from. Yeah. To have clean water. To go buy a Maxima. If you want one. You know, you look at them, like, if you look at that car, for us, it's like, oh, that's a nice car. But yeah. for somebody, like, for the majority of the world, yeah. it's an amazing thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So most of the success that I owe, um, and I don't want to say most of it, I say all of it, really comes down to my parents. I really believe that now. I believe that the influences that you and dad instilled upon me led to everything that I could ever claim to be a measure of success because... Whenever I 
like I was talking to Lonnie just a little bit ago about this. Like we were, we did a, like a 30 minute sparring match. Uh uh, And we just, we always do this every Wednesday. We call it old man rounds. And we sit at the corner of the mat and like, I'm looking at Eric's kickboxing class and there's like 25, 30 people in it. You know, some of many of them I know, some of them I haven't even got to know yet. Over on the other side of the mat, there's this Brazilian jiu-jitsu program um, training, you know, people that I've coached that are now coaching. And uh, when I think of things like that, first of all, it trips me out because we started from literally ground zero with nothing, no instruction, no profession, nothing. But then I go, well, where did the belief come from? Why did was I so stubbornly pursuant of this this dream of mine that I had at one point in time for so long? What got me through these uh, the seven eight gyms that failed, or some could say would fail, and then to continue to go through it? And I can always go back to the lessons that I was given either by you or by Dad because I remember them because they were poignant. They were things like. Um, don't get up and make a ton of money going to a job you hate. Get up and get a small amount of money if that's what will pay you and live a life that you absolutely love. That has manifested itself as reality because, believe it or not, the gym business doesn't come with a ton of money. <laughs> I know. But <clears throat> the development of individuals, the development of individual growth, seeing a child um, you know, like Blaine or Mia or Ronan, At age five, running around the gym, kicking the bags, and now seeing them 14, 15, 18 years old. Disciplined. Disciplined, more disciplined, -disciplined. more strong, um, more confident than I ever was when I was a kid because I was like you. I was shy and withdrawn and like, I don't want to, you know, Um, to to take the pain of my, my own shyness and my own lack of desire for social interaction. But then to take the lessons that you dad, you and dad provided me and craft a place or a, a company or a team that rids children of that shyness, that vanquishes that because it hurt. When I was a kid, I was painfully shy. Like I was like, I had no happy thoughts about my future. I was projecting and going, if I can't even like try out for football because I don't want to fail in front of these kids. What's the rest of my life looking like? Like I had the, I had the power and the mind power to project and to see that mainly because of things that you taught me and, you know, Mm -hmm. logic and deductive reasoning and things like that to go, wow, the future's not looking good for you. You can't even talk to a girl. You can't even try out for the football team. Can I just say something now? Sure. (laughs) I've told you this before, but for the record, Dad and I would talk about our children when we were alone. You know, how... As all parents do. How are they doing? Mm -hmm. What can we do for them? And we agreed that you were a follower. Based on what About the time that you blew a hole in your neck. (laughs) (laughs) I was leading from the front, see? I was charging the front lines. I almost blew myself up with a homemade explosive device. Yes. And so uh, um, we we really thought you would be a follower. And you proved us so wrong. Happily. You know, you're a leader. And it is because you followed your passion. Um, You know, I think it's because I was 
I didn't want to be a follower. I think it's because I thought I was keenly aware, again, because of the lessons of my youth about the preciousness of life. And the one of the biggest fears that I had as a child was not Freddy Krueger. I liked Freddy Krueger. I know. I had Fangoria <laughs> magazines. It was mediocrity. It was getting, and I still do this. I still walk into graveyards. Mm-hmm. And when I'm there and I look at tombstones and I, I've talked about this with you before and other people that I look at this little square piece of granite on the ground maybe and I go that's a whole person's life you know 1898 to 1952 it's like all these experiences that I'll never know about yeah um you know uplifting things trying things tragic things and it's not it's now all encapsulated in this granite slab and that's it that's what the world remembers. To me, that was really sad. Now it's not. Now, now I have a different perspective of it. But then the idea of getting a nine to five job mm-hmm. and putting all of my planning on enjoying my life in the last 10 or 15 years of it seemed so tragic. Yeah. It seemed like such a loss. I always felt like I was living in a society of people who were suffering from mass delusion about yeah. what the what life and the pursuit of happiness really was. Yes. And what was that analogy you used about for the television? What do you mean? The, you would look at the television and talk about how the television is your god, not your god, but people's god and how they they judge yeah. their entire reality based on the images that are implanted into their head through screens that they hold yeah, or they, yeah. they stare into. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is, it is programming. Yeah. It's social it engineering and a lot of things are, and that doesn't necessarily mean that television is always nefarious, but it is always programming. It's yeah. always changing and shifting thoughts. And now, you know, we live in a world where, um, I would say even the programming isn't even trying to be, uh, unbiased or true. It's, no overtly biased and divisive in nature but everything that i've ever done has come from words that you spoke you words that you and dad spoke to me or actions and that was it and i've made choices but all of those choices ultimately can be traced back to logical reasonable thought process that were pushed onto me by a mom who loved me and, and loved science and loved faith and love in a dad who loved to work and loved to create and loved to share that experience with and me. wasn't afraid to show his love to his sons not at all and probably was tried too hard sometimes <laughs> by giving us everything we want going into debt and then having to go yes. through bankruptcy yes. uh, to get back to a place of financial footing but um i don't see myself as uh, incredible or amazing i see myself as a result of my surroundings, my environment, my influences, and my ultimately my choices. There's a lot of people that have a life just as blessed as I did, and they make the wrong choices, and it takes them down a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that have, they, they parent their, kill, their kids with love, and they can't stop their kids from taking a downward spiral. Just as what it is. It could be a, but it's a multitude of different factors. Yes, it's environment, and it's, and it does genetics. take a village. It does take a village at it times, does, right? Yes. Um, but 
I would say that people's caretakers or their parents are the biggest influences. I, I would agree with that. And when uh, our family always uh, led with love, there was never a question that our family cared about each other. Didn't mean we were going to fight tooth and nail about. Didn't the, mean we weren't going to fight. Right. But, um, <clears throat> but we did that because we loved you. A lot of this, a lot of this type of idea, I just read a book and we've talked about it. Think and grow rich mm -hmm. in about people's perceptions and perspectives about what rich is. Well, rich in America to most people means extremely wealthy. Mm -hmm. Rich to me means a, a fulfilling existence. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I always felt like my experience was very, very rich which at times was at odds with this painfully shy, uh, socially withdrawn kid. I had these great parents that loved me and worked their asses off for me and tried to help me understand the world in ways, you know, like you, you don't remember a lot of the stuff probably that probably you did, not. <laughs> but things like buying me a, a time life series of books about history so that I could just mm. learn about how things connect together. Yeah. Um, telling me things over and over again, reinforcing to me. It's not about how much money you make. It's about how happy you are in your mm -hmm. life and getting up. Those things stuck with me. And when I got to the darkest hours where I failed and then I failed again and then I failed again and then I, or at least that's the way I could have thought about it. Mm -hmm. I thought back to myself and went, you know, look at all this. Look at what I've done to this point. I'm not suffering. I didn't grow up in war-torn Rwanda. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not a, a, a Jewish person in Poland in World War II. Mm -hmm. I've got all this opportunity here. Is your life really that painful? Look at the glass half full. And that was it. Optimism, um, but also logic and reason was something that you instilled upon me from an early age. And I remember how you used to tell me, Keone, you're going to be influenced by this rap music, whether you like it or not. <laughs> You're going to be influenced by death metal, whether you like it or not. And I would go, no, I'm not, Mom. This is art. This is just musical expression. I know. I'm aware of what it's trying to tell me. And now I know that that's just not true. Now I know that it absolutely does influence you. You had those really honest conversations with me uh, early enough that it set uh, an honest framework of the world, that I could look at the world. The biggest obstacle that I had to overcome was myself. And the fact that my parents were so loving. That's so insightful. What? That your biggest obstacle to overcome was yourself. Well, that's, I think that's true with everybody. It is. You know? I mean, that's the whole thing. But the, the tools that I was given, I can recognize that even though we grew up and we had basically poverty, we didn't have any money, no. presents were hard to come by. Yeah. Um, my parents caring and loving me gave me everything that I had. That's all there is to it. If I wouldn't have had that, I, now I look at, you know, down the road, you sent me to Washington, D.C. when I was 13, and yeah. um, that was my chosen trip, my, my uh, rite of passage into manhood, so to speak. And what, a, what an interesting one it was. Yeah. But that type of thing was important enough for you to do, and that type of thing changed the course of my life. It allowed me the opportunity to see that I could take this anger and maybe mold it into something. I could take this social alienation and this shame that I had about myself and turn it into something. And so then when dad uh, kind of just hat by happenstance mentioned this guy, Bruce Lee, 
and I saw Bruce, there was this little thing sparked in my mind like, oh, even though you are a little, t- you know, weak twerp that is afraid to hang out with people and go to birthday parties and do this type of shit, you can be powerful. You just mm-hmm. have to train hard. Yeah. And so uh, ultimately, I'm just a result of good upbringing, choices, and my surroundings. And, and that's it. There's nothing magical about it. But I do recognize how easily... Um, well-intentioned, good-intentioned people, and even people that come from good supportive backgrounds can veer because I almost did so many mm. times. Yeah. And that's a tough trip. Well, I have to say that I'm really proud of your children mm. and how you've raised them. They're both disciplined, self-disciplined. I never thought Ronan would be. Well, he was a little wild child. But he was. He's he matured is. a lot yeah. lately. Yeah. I think we're late bloomers in the Koch family. <laughs> we resist We resist our given establishments as long as we possibly can. So when I moved out, I moved out on Mother's Day. Yes, you did. In 1996. It was to punish me, I think. No, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was an act of rebellion because I felt like I knew the rigors of adulthood enough to not have to be constantly chastised about why I didn't get a job and this and that. I told dad and I told you, and you actually backed me on this. I don't want to get a job. I just want to go to school and finish school. And then I'll accept the responsibility of work when I'm 18 and I need to do so. But to me, school, I hated school. And school was a full-time job for me to even bear it, to just go. I hated the experience. I I had a circle of friends, a very, very small circle of friends, Mm -hmm. but I felt alone in school and there's probably a lot of my classmates being like really like yeah we thought you're good i did it's miserable experience for me socially i'm an introvert so i wasn't having it and i wasn't really confident in myself at the time either so um i wanted i got tired of hearing these arguments uh from dad and from uh you and i feel like i was getting to a point where i was I was obviously trying to find my place in the world as an adult or as a maturing adult. And I wanted to show you. I wanted to show my parents, okay, you don't believe I know what it's like out there? I'll show you. Well, I'll you show did. you that I'm, yeah. Well, and it was miserable. <laughs> the, the, the interest, the, the, it was independence, as you know, I'm sure, is amazing. It feels liberating. And like when I moved to Belle Plaine, liberating and frightening and terrifying and hungry. <laughs> and hungry. Yes. So I moved to Belle Plaine um, on a whim, essentially. Mm-hmm. James, like, I'm moving here. And I had a fight <clears throat> or multiple fights about things that I didn't think were a big issue. But the main thing was I we were starting to butt heads. My parents and me were starting to butt yeah. heads. With Dad, it was about work. With you, it was about who knows what. You have to finish school or you have to leave. That's what it was about. Well, you have to finish school or you can't. Well, that's what you always told me. You always told me you're not going to let me just hang out here. Right. Right. And that's what it was about. And that made you angry. But I, I had no intention on leaving school. But when I made my decision, I I made my decision and I went to Jeff and I got my transcripts and I was like, I'm out of here. And everybody, even my friends. Yeah. Right. Like you've said that type of stuff before. You're not going. And then just one day I wasn't there. Yeah. You know, and. 
uh, I remember leaving and feeling absolutely horrible, not only because I left on Mother's Day and I knew it was against your wishes and dad's wishes, but I knew that dad was going to worry incessantly about me. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. And I also knew that at the time, Eric was like eight years old and he was my right hand man. Oh, he loved you. And I loved having a brother. Yeah. I waited to have a little sibling and then I had one and we were essentially inseparable and where a lot of kids can't stand their siblings. You know, if there's eight years in between, oh my God, driving me nuts. I loved having Eric around. I take him with me places. Like we were really, truly inseparable. I loved watching him, you know, compete in Taekwondo and do all these things. So I felt really like I was abandoning him. I felt like because you left the house early and I knew that, um, that as long as dad could see me enough to know I wasn't dead, you would at some point simmer down and understand. But Eric was the one. Yeah that really hurt my feelings because when I would go two, three, four weeks and then eventually a couple months from time to time and I wouldn't talk to him. Like there were times I'm not shitting you. I would be bawling myself to sleep because mm -hmm. I felt so bad about um, leaving my family yeah. and, and thinking, ah, should you have just stayed until you're 18? Like these are, I knew how precious time was. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing uh, that again, you have helped me understand, but I feel like, from a very, very young age, if there's anything special about me at all, it's that I understand the preciousness of every single moment that I have on earth. And the fact that I wasn't there for my brother during a very scary time in his life, yeah. you know, adolescence, that tore me to pieces all the time. And I didn't really tell him about it till years later, but it really, really bothered me. It bummed me out bad. Um, but I also felt this need to jump into the world and prove to the world. I, I felt like I was on a collision course. The, the minute that I left the house on 400, I felt like I was almost being sucked into this vortex that was, I could direct, but I couldn't quite control. Mm -hmm. And at first I couldn't see anything. It was just a dumb kid on his own and loving independence. But shortly thereafter, I got really deep, a lot deeper into martial arts. And then I knew. Once I hit, you know, two, three years later, after I left home and I was now 18 or 19, I was working at McLeod, I got my own house, mm -hmm. I knew. I knew where I was going, I knew what yeah. I wanted to do, and it was just like inevitability. Yeah. But the whole time that I've done all of this stuff, I've always went back and cited the lessons of my, of that childhood that was rough, and parents that were there for me like a rock looking out for me, even so if they weren't always there. If I can ask you now, um how that has affected your life as a parent leaving early no the fact that you give me and dad all this credit has that had an effect on the way you parent your children absolutely um and <clears throat> the hope is what you used to tell me and what dad used to tell me all the time i just want to give you more opportunity in a better life than what I have. That's what a parent's yeah. responsibility is. And so I was fortunate enough to plan my children and I could never plan how to take care of the kids or what they would do to relationships after we had kids, which is a whole different story. Yeah. But I knew when I wanted to have kids, I was careful about not having kids too early and I still had them too early. <laughs> <laughs> but when I did, I remembered the things that I appreciated the most about my parents were love and honesty. Mm -hmm. 
I loved the fact that I could feel genuinely cared for and loved by my parents. And I loved the fact that my mom would go, um, no, that's bullshit. <laughs> Let me tell you the way things really are. And you would. And, you know, when uh, some of these pivotal memories, but when we were going through your records for the first time and you were introducing me to Hendrix mm -hmm. and Joplin and The Doors, and you, you recounted a story about how you were walking in down the road in Hawaii and you were listening to Riders on the Storm and you were like freaked out by it and really scared by it and left this message. And it sucked me into a time in a place of my mom that I didn't even recognize. And uh, having that kind of exposure, having a, a mom that would go, oh, I know it doesn't make sense, honey, but the reason that is is because everybody was on drugs. <laughs> and I'm like six or seven going, Oh shit. <laughs> um, it was a clear and honest view of the world. Mm -hmm. And as a child, I appreciated that children are so sheltered now. Um, or they're not as sheltered now with the internet, of course, but like they were sheltered a lot. And what I found out as a child is you are lied to basically from the time you are born to the time you, even beyond you get past the clutches of high school and college and you're still lied to in society about certain things. But what do I mean by that? Well, as a kid, everything's magical until you learn that Santa Claus isn't as real as they say he is. And then you find out that the Easter bunny is not real. And then you figure out that the tooth fairy is not real. And then you figure out that politics sucks 100% of the time. And then you figure out that people in power of our country aren't really looking out for the best interest of our world or our country. They're looking out for their own best interest. So by the time most people get to adulthood and figure it out, they're like old. They're yeah. older. They're elderly. Yes. And I feel like because of my parents' honesty and love, and I think honesty goes hand in hand with love, I was better prepared to see the world for what it is. And I was better prepared to teach my children about the world in the way that it is. The, the, one of the things that stands out um, about you and teaching me revolves around the Baha'i faith when I was rebellious against everything. No, it's religion, blah, you know? Mm -hmm. And you go, well, I don't want you to just adhere to this. I want you to go read everything. Go read the Bible. Go read the Quran. Get yeah. as much information as you can and make your choice because this is your life. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly profound to me. That changed my whole life because most kids, even turning into adults, are just carbon copies to a certain degree of their parents and the people that programmed them. And what you were there saying. There is a right way to do things. Yeah. What you yeah. were saying was, mm -hmm. don't take my word for it. I want you to go look at alternative evidence and that shaped everything. That's something that I still hold dear to me because I still haven't accepted a religion. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still go, okay, let me talk. Let's commiserate. Let's talk about <laughs> your founder, but I'm not going to join your club because right. I only belong to one club and it's not recognized yet. And that's the club of uh, earthly humanity, shall we say. And uh, those things really, you know, they, they left an impact on me and that impact translated to my kids in a way where um, I was able to be incredibly honest with them. You know, I was able to talk to Peyton and go, Peyton, um, there's going to come a point in time where your friends very well may impede upon your progress, depending on where they're at in life and the choices that they make. And there will be people out there that, that say that they want to be your friend, but they're not really looking out for your best interest. Be kind to them. 
-hmm. try to help them. But if they start to pull you down, let them go. Um, that type of thing. And, and even when it comes to politics, you know, going, Hey, don't look at this side or this side. Don't adopt my democratic ideology just because I vote Democrat most of the time. Go look at the other stuff. Yeah. Um, now I feel incredibly blessed to have a perspective that, it, that accepts nothing as an absolute. I'm so glad. Well, it's, so it's glad limited. Because it is all about how each person sees the world, mm -hmm. you know, and not trying to fit in, but seeking their own truth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm glad that, that you was, see it as That fun. was your intent, I think, <clears throat> was to make sure that I didn't grow up and mature just blindly accepting Into a whatever mediocre reality exactly yeah like i feel like i've been given a privilege from a very young age to have a, a mindset geared towards transcendent thought which is absolutely priceless you couldn't give me any amount of money to trade that up you just couldn't so i'm happy and thank you and i'm happy too i wanted to really allow you the opportunity to share life experiences and a lot of the stuff that i heard i didn't even know so really? it's so it's so it's good for well and that's what's so cool yeah. about conversing yeah. in this type of medium is i want to have conversations with people that prove to other people that we're all coming from the same place that we're all real right and we all live in mm -hmm. one planet yeah and it's drifting out into the ethos <laughs> And if we don't get our shit figured out, we're going to get vaporized. <laughs> and uh, it's, and I, I, I on that positive note. <laughs> I, well, I say that tongue in cheek, but I, I really believe, and I've told you this before, that um, I, I no longer don't believe in myself. Even though I've, I've, some people would argue I've accomplished some great things, I still had limiting beliefs about what my capabilities are. Uh -huh. I don't anymore. Yeah. And I want to commit my life to um, uh, promoting the, the concept and the idea that loving each other on a global scale is the only way that our species way. will survive. Yeah. And uh, we are geared in a different direction now towards self-fulfilling prophecies and yeah. the yeah. End, of, end, end of days. And I think, if you're an em I think if you want to claim to be an empathetic person, you can't empathize with the plight of people living. You have to empathize with all people and, mm. and the suffering that has happened all through the oh, ages. No. And there are, the, I recognize and have recognized because I'm a student of history that there are people that have suffered in ways I can't possibly imagine. And I owe them an ethical responsibility, uh, you know, uh, to make sure that the world learns from and prevents these things from happening. We need, uh, to survive, to have some kind of spiritual yeah. faith transcendence. And that doesn't mean it adheres to religion. Mm -hmm. It means people need to get connected to the divine. And to each other. And, and because we're because, all divine. Exactly. Yeah. Because we're all communicating uh, in ways that we don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> ways that are scientifically measurable that most people are completely yeah. un unaware of. But if you believe God created the world and everything in it, then are we not all one? Science can tell us that we're stardust. It can it can yeah. show us that we're made of stardust. Yeah. Um, the 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 hang up with God is the word, not the word of God. Don't get me wrong. Not the scripture, this or that. The actual word. 
the it's name God. The, the name God. The picture of a white-haired guy in the sky. Right. The 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 deity. That's not the only hang-up. Well, it's not, but you know, um, it's a big one. Yeah. And my the way I say my God's name is different than yours, so we should go to war. Yeah. We shouldn't look at the commonalities. We should look at the difference because you're wearing these clothes. You're accepting yeah. these religious, uh, you know, customs. Uh, to me, I, I had this really interesting conversation. I told you about this. I met with uh, a pastor who's one of my best friends. Right. And I met with uh, one of my students who's also devoutly religious and does, you know, he does some uh, preaching himself. And we sat down to lunch. And I'm really fortunate to know these guys because these guys asked me to go. And they're like, we want to. You know, we want to have a little debate conversation and, and that's awesome to have people that are like, we're going to reach outside of the church to get the opinions of people. And they knew that I'm, you know, hesitant. On the fence. I'm, 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 not, on the fence. I'm always going to be on the fence <laughs> because I'm not going to have a man tell me about my relationship with an entity he can't possibly comprehend. Right. 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 So I sit down and we're talking and we're, we're passing all these questions back and forth and, uh, I, I propose a question to them and I say, okay, Jeremy Parnell, hypothetically, God comes down from the heavens and speaks to you and says, look, all of the world's ills and religious strife and division that's come about has come about because of simple human language, this archaic language that has now made this word God is supposed to stand for me, but it's used in so many nefarious ways. I command you to find another word in the English dictionary for God, you have to you have to decide the best word for it. What word do you choose? And um, I knew exactly what my answer was before I asked them. And so they kind of sat back and went, oh, I have to replace the word God with another word, a word that most closely represents what God has taught to us to be. And they they were stumped for a minute. the The question I proposed, took them off guard and my my student uh came back and did what a lot of people of faith do they restated the question and threw it right back at me mm. well coach mm. I, you know honestly i don't know um let me throw this question back at you what do you think love parno yeah love yeah. that's the only answer that's the only thing that can quantify mm. on the human spectrum and we are told that god's in us all and that god loves us and this and that and, lo- and what does it all come down to that golden rule Mm-hmm. to treat other mm-hmm. people with kindness and love. I don't know if my answer is the right answer, but I believe it is. And I believe that the most clear-cut evidence that I have found on the existence of divinity and of a creator and of what a lot of people call God or Allah or whatever you want to term it on is love, is the expression unnecessary in a fairly primitive species of love. And, and when it's unconditional, when you see, when I see videos of people driving down the street and going, excuse me, sir, you have a beautiful smile and I like your mustache. I hope you have a great day. You feel something in you yeah. that's closer to God than you'll ever feel in your life. When you have a child and you develop a bond with that child, mm-hmm. when you um, have a parent like I had dad and you had dad pass away. That's when you're, tr- I feel like you're at your truest um, connection mm-hmm. when you understand how powerful that love is. Love is incredible. Yeah. It's so incredible 
that outside of the amazing good that it does, it also leads to horrible, horrible <laughs> things when people have imbalanced minds, like crimes of passion. So yeah. um, love is the answer. Love is all you need. And if we had, I believe if we had 51% of the population of this world that believes that, our world will be saved. And if we don't, we will perish. Yeah. We'll suffer from our own self-fulfilling prophecies. That's what I think. So that's my mission. And you helped me, uh, you helped inspire that mission and you helped inspire this. So uh, isn't it interesting how everything connects through the ages and how actions that you were uh, unwittingly uh, taking part in or or lessons that you were teaching me because you wanted to be a good parent someday would help fuel a wrestling club. (laughs) No, not in my wildest dreams. Of course, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but that that is a testament to the fact that we are indeed living in dreams yes. and that we can do whatever we want with focused yeah. thought, hard work and love. Yep. So what you project with your mind becomes your reality. It does. And you know what's so oh. cool about that? Like when you were teaching me when I was a kid about electrical impulse and how like crazy mm-hmm. unknown the brain is. You know, I was fascinated with things like uh you know, magic tricks and mind over matter and concepts like that. And I went now, I I don't think of mind over matter as me looking at this and moving it. I think of mind over matter as me thinking about moving that thing and moving it. I don't think about moving mountains in a single bound. I think about picking up a shovel and starting to dig. And in that way, my mind is manifesting a reality. So people want instant gratification and they often give up on it. But mind over matter uh, is exactly what's happened in my life. I've taken nothing. I went out and researched it and I created this thing. So when people people go, oh, I can't do that. I just want to lose my mind. (laughs) I want to go, I did a lot with nothing. And I know other people that have done more with even less. (laughs) than what I had. So stop talking about these excuses. And if you want something, if you want to manifest a destiny, just go do it. And if you screw up, you can adjust along the way. But there's never a right time. Well, screwing up actually leads to answers. Of course. And screwing, if you don't screw up, you don't learn. And that's a big lesson in martial arts is like, and that's, I I owe a lot of this also to the journey of martial arts itself. Because in that journey, um, you have to get comfortable with uncomfortable and you are going to lose. People are going to tap you out. People are going to hit you. People are going to kick you. And in that pain, um, whether it's ego pain or physical pain, is going to shape you into a better person and help you make better decisions. If you stick with it. If you stick with it. And that's why there's a saying in martial arts that you don't ever, if you you win, you win. And if you lose, you learn. And if the only way you can really truly lose is if you just quit. Yeah. And a lot of people do. So now that you have been through all of these life experiences and you've gotten to this point of perspective and, and more clarity, we're always getting more clear as we age and uh, approach the final destination, yes. which I'm surprised you haven't brought up at this point. I in was going <laughs> <laughs> um, If you could summarize uh, the most important things in life to pay attention to, to not take for granted, and to revel in while they are there. What, if this was your last uh, parting word of advice and you were going to pass away tomorrow, what would you want to leave for the world and uh, what message would you want the world to to hear? 
savor each moment. Stop <clears throat> and listen to whoever is in front of you. Be authentic. That's it? That's it. Fair enough. All you need is love. All you need is love. Well, Mom, I appreciate you not quitting. I appreciate you sitting through this podcast, and I'd love to have you back sometime, and we'll talk about other specifics like Chicago and the crazy uh, multiplex <laughs> apartment living conversation. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate your candor. Uh, I think people really identify with vulnerability, and that's kind of one thing I want to touch on. I want people to be able to just like let all this stuff go and, and speak it to the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's freeing. You know what I mean? It is. It's freeing yes. in a way. So. I think when people hear about the trials and tribulations you went through and I went through and dad and everybody else go through, it, it makes them feel a little bit more at ease at their own situation. So I appreciate the honest feedback. You're welcome. All right, mama. I love Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Yes. We'll close the show. More. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>